Welcome everybody back to the Pittsburgh Oddcast. My name is Andrew Lindbergh, and with me as always is the founder of Odd Pittsburgh, John Chalkowski. Well, hello everybody. Today I wanted to bring you another show of, uh, maybe not a trilogy of tales, but a quadrilogy? A quad? A quad of tales. A quad of tales. Core tales. <laughs> Core tales, yes. Um, and uh, these are things that have always fascinated me and always have uh, interesting stories behind but couldn't necessarily fill up their own show. Although we will do an entire show on one of the subject matters uh, in the future. But I did want to kind of share a little tidbit of these tales. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to go right into it. And uh, Andrew. Yes, sir. On June 24th, 1938, a gigantic event happened in Pittsburgh. Now, you might not, you might know because you're looking at it in front of you, but what type of thing, a gigantic thing that could cause a gigantic explosion, a blast, a flash of white light, blow out windows all over Pittsburgh, what kind of uh, thing could cause that to happen? You'd think maybe an explosion at a steel mill or... That's true, and that, a lot of people did think that, but... Uh, what was actually happening was a four, 500 to 600 ton object was hurling itself through outer space into the atmosphere above Pittsburgh. It almost wiped out the entire town. What? Yes. This was what today is called the Chikora meteorite. This was a meteor that crash landed near Pittsburgh. And if it was just a few miles off, it would have literally wiped out the city. And uh, I'm going to read to you a little bit about uh, how the papers first reacted to this. So remember, this is summertime, June of 1938. As this meteor's blast smashes windows in Shadyside, thousands are made jittery by the wild dash of astral fireballs over a wide area. Observatory will gather data. The heaven's most spectacular display, the falling of a... Uh, whoop, the heavens' most spectacular display, the falling of a fireball meteor with its accompanying explosion like a mighty clap of thunder. Early last night, unnerved thousands of Pittsburghers broke windows in shady side homes and flooded police stations and newspaper offices with telephone calls. Screaming across the sky in a north-by-northwest direction, the meteor was first seen in Washington, PA, and was last reported near the vicinity of Bakerstown. The flaming ball trailed by a spiral of black smoke was described by eyewitnesses as more than four feet in diameter and within hundreds of feet of the Earth. When a meteor explodes, it showers down upon the Earth like bursting shrapnel. But until 8.30 last night, no one had reported seeing any fragments strike the ground. At Allegheny Observatory, a staff member said the explosion was heard and that there was an eyewitness where correct the phenomenon must be the meteor. The reaction of Pittsburghers in 1938 to the awesome spectacle was strangely like the reaction of people before the birth of Christ, who were so filled with fear, and they worshipped it as the mother of gods. The voice of persons calling by telephone were strained, and in some cases, scarcely coherent. There was no need to be worried, though, about falling meteors. The encyclopedia says comfortably, because there is only one verified case of a person ever being killed by one. They usually land in fields, on mountains, or in the ocean. And that's exactly what happened to this Chikor meteorite. It was uh, used to be, you know, somewhere in between Jupiter and Mars, the asteroid belt somewhere, yeah. you know, floating around for who knows how many years. And uh, randomly, it took off in its own course right for Pittsburgh. 
<laughs> this is only one of eight times ever in Pittsburgh recorded history that a meteor has been seen or uh, even seen around this area, let alone crash land in the area. Uh, if it hit the city, there would have been very few survivors. Okay. Uh, where it did hit was about 12 miles above the city in the north of Bakerstown in a little area in Butler County called Chakora, PA. Landed in a field uh, with a farmer and uh, only, ready for this, so even though this thing originally was 500 to 600 tons, that's how big this thing was, yeah. heavy, right? But the only piece ever found was a tiny little 10-ounce fragment that was cut in half, and half of it's on display at the Carnegie. The other half is on display at the Smithsonian Museum. And the rest has never been recovered, recovered to this day. So uh, a lot of it has to do with um, maybe it just uh, you know, was a rocky terrain or something like that. Uh, this is before the days of metal detectors, so it wasn't easy to kind of find iron, you know, uh, which was, makes up most meteorites. Although today, it could be a possibility. And by the way, meteorites. A small fragment like 10 ounces could be worth $100,000. Wow. <laughs> so it's out there. You just got to know where to look. But why I mentioned this story, and I think I mentioned it one time years ago, uh, uh, because of a weird, inter- interesting connection to the War of the Worlds. So remember, this is happening in summer of 1938. Four months later, on Halloween 1938, Orson Welles would do his War of the Worlds broadcast. And how the Martians crash land in New Jersey in this in that story is through a meteorite. So Pittsburghers, you're hearing this on the radio that there's a meteorite flying over New Jersey now and crash lands, and now there's Martians inside this meteorite. They're gonna take over the world. I mean, Pittsburghers a little uh, nervous to say the least. Uh, people were threatening suicide. People were jumping out of uh, you know <laughs> jumping out of buildings. Uh, priests were calling. Uh, the, the news to try to calm everyone down. It was a big uh, a big ordeal. But you could see how Pittsburgh might have been a little uh, spooked by this whole event just because there really was a gigantic meteorite that almost wiped out the entire city. Uh, luckily, it didn't. But that, that, that happened. Well, recently from this recording date, we did a story on how two uh, defunct satellites were possibly going to collide yeah, over Pittsburgh. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we talked to Ralph Crew at the Carnegie Science Center, and he said that Basically, it would look like kind of a mini burst of uh, meteor shower, right, um, right. but like that would be it. But it was cloudy and rainy anyway. So even if they did collide, I know. we probably would not. I did go out and noticed. look. Like it was like four thirty-seven p.m. I was like looking up in the sky. I was like, "Come on, come on!" Yeah, they missed. <laughs> you know. But anyways, it's amazing that it doesn't happen more often with all the space junk. You think it would? There. Yeah, you think it would. So that brings us not to not related whatsoever, but another tale, another of the. Quad Tales, and this one is about Roberto Clemente's FBI case file. Roberto Clemente had an FBI case file? Sure did. Um, now, here's why this is kind of strange and unusual or worthy of an odd cast mention, is because um, the FBI has an archive, which is now searchable by the public for any kind of documents uh, that are no longer classified or... Uh, heavily redacted information is all available there. Uh, all you have to do is go on the website, be willing to let them look at your entire life, and go ahead and search for the word Pittsburgh. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so I, uh, you find a lot of things. Most of it is about communists, you know, in the 1950s, and and uh, there's a lot of people being followed and 
a lot of reports of stuff like that. But uh, Roberto Clemente came as a surprise to see his name in this FBI case files here in Pittsburgh. And I found two things I've mentioned. One is a report from 1964 where they were surveilling him. And the report goes that uh, surveillance conducted in the vicinity of the residence of Redacted. Pittsburgh, PA, disclosed that the following two cars were parked on the street directly in front of the residence of Roberto Clemente during the period of surveillance. A 1964 light green Cadillac Coupe de Ville and a black Lincoln sedan bearing a 1964 license plate. B.O. 5931. There you go. You know Roberto Clemente's license plate now. <laughs> well, that's, you know, normal. I could see how maybe they would follow somebody or, or maybe track somebody down or just want to know what's going on. Uh, but the next thing I found was something that was very unusual. And that was from a report from 1972. And this was a letter to the acting director of the FBI, right, from the Pittsburgh office. And it's about Roberto Clemente, the victim of extortion. And this goes on to say, and I'm going to read the actual letter that Roberto Clemente received. Uh, well, not directly, but indirectly. And the report of the FBI goes, Enclosed for the Bureau, Newark and San Juan, is a one copy each of the FD-302 of an interview with Redacted, the Pittsburgh Pirates, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Enclosed for the FBI laboratory was the original of an envelope postmarked Clifton, New Jersey, September 26, 1972, and addressed in care of Roberta Clemente, Pittsburgh Pirates, Three River Stadium, Pittsburgh, PA, 15212, and a typewritten note in red ink contained therein, beginning with, to Mr. Roberto Clemente, and ending with, did you ever get shot with a shotgun before? Yeah. Redacted, the Pittsburgh Pirates advised that the letter postmarked September 26, 1972, making a threat on the life of Roberto Clemente during a game played at Three River Stadium, Pittsburgh, PA, on September 29th. 1972 was received at Three River Stadium. It goes on to say that the letter was possessed presumably as normal fan mail and did not come to Roberto's attention until November 1st. So two months later, advised that the game referred to in the letter was in fact played on September 29th without incident. Further uh, redacted, further advised that Roberto Clemente is currently in Puerto Rico. On November 7th, the facts of this case were discussed with AUSA J. Waldman of Pittsburgh, PA. Mr. Waldman advised that inasmuch as the date of the threat against the life of Roberto Clemente was passed, and since there were no follow-up threats nor any clue as to who the possible suspects may be, the matter did not merit further investigation. Enclosed is a copy of the letter, the anonymous letter filed and returned to Pittsburgh in the FBI office. And the letter goes to Mr. Roberto Clemente on September 29th, Friday, at Pittsburgh Pirates Three Rivers Stadium in the top of the second inning. You will be shot while playing right field. I will be waiting for you. Let's say it's a present from a Mets fan. See you in hell. P.S. Did you ever get shot with a shotgun before? <laughs> How about that? Wow, and he didn't even know about that. No, I don't think anyone knows about that uh, because it's in the FBI Files, you know, you, the only way you're going to find that information is by looking on the FBI's website. The thing that really surprises me is two things. One is that while nothing happened, obviously, 
Um, they didn't decide to follow up or care about it or look into it any further. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, this happened on September 29th is what he was saying. He was gonna, going to kill him, apparently, at Three River Stadium. You know what happened on September 30th, the next day? We got 3,000. And final hit. Only hit yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Like, who knew? You know, that. but that's the thing. That's, you know, part of, I guess, becoming popular is people want to bring you down. And um, clearly, someone, a Mets fan, <laughs> of all things, uh, wanted to try to bring Roberto down. And uh, so little things like that, you come across that, you know, it's not necessarily a full episode, but it's definitely worthy of mention because that is a that is a strange fact. But if you are interested in finding more about that information or see it for yourself, uh, all you got to do is go to FBI.gov and type in Pittsburgh, and you will find some information. But like you said, you have to be willing to basically just not yeah, you're there, you're you're uh, yeah, they know who you are. Not that they so. don't know already. Right, exactly. That's but what I figured. I, I, I figured you're fast tracking it. Right. I was like, yeah, they already know who I am. I don't care. I was like, hey, I, I've already, I've off, I have offered to help, so <laughs> some other things, and say, uh, let me have access to all your cool stuff in the archives, and I'll help you do whatever you want. So who's to say I'm not helping right at this moment? Mm. Oh. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so when you think of classical composers, like. Bach or Mozart or Rachmaninoff or whoever, um, you don't necessarily think of Pittsburgh, do you? No. Yeah, you don't think of uh, you know concerto in black and gold. You know, you think of uh, concerto in D minors. And there's a character in Pittsburgh history who is very fascinating, strange, and unusual. And I somewhat had a brief running at least with one of his descendants growing up myself as a kid so the man that i knew which some of you might know already uh because he was well known was a man named professor ralph zitterbart and he was my piano teacher um after my uh i initially was taught by a woman named phyllis shavostel and after i kind of surpassed you know what she could teach me she had me go to cmu as a kid so i was about 15 maybe 14 or 15 years old, and started learning from Professor Ralph Zitterbart, who was this legendary piano teacher. Um, and legendary, I'd, I'd also say infamous, because he had some kind of way of talking. It's not kind of some uh, some kind of a mean thing to say about him, because uh, it was very clear. But uh, it wasn't necessarily a lisp. But when he talked, or at least when he got angry, spit would go flying as far as the you know as it could possibly i've never seen someone spit so far and so much while talking wow <laughs> um other than this guy and i i tell you what i mean you went into his house there was three grand pianos in his home and he lived in oakland um and i used to go to his house and uh he'd have a piano in the waiting room you know which was his living room and dining room area and then he'd take you down to the basement where he had two more pianos and uh one for himself and one for you and uh, you, you'd sit there and he'd, you know, get you to play and learn how to play piano for real. Like, and I'm talking, I'm, I, I was being trained in how to play uh, Beethoven sonatas, piano sonatas. And uh, he would make, I mean, for four bars of music, I'd play that thing at every single tempo there is known to man by a metronome. Okay, whether it was at 80 beats per minute or 120 or 140, 
I'd play it all staccato. Then I'd go back and play it all legato. Or I'd play it backwards. Or I'd play it with skipping every other note. Or I'd play it with uh, different rhythms, right? So just those four bars. And after you've mastered just those four bars of music, then you move on to the next four bars of music. That process could take you a month just learning those first four bars of music. Obsessively, every single night, playing piano. <laughs> okay. Uh, you tell this to a 50 year old, 15 year old, I was, uh, both enjoyed it because I'd still to this day can play Beethoven sonatas, uh, because of his training and because my fingers basically have remembered what to do. And, uh, it was his teaching and his training, uh, that made it that way. But he would get so frustrated, <laughs> right? And he would, you know, yell and slap your hands off the piano and uh, you'd have a highlighter and he'd highlight the book all angrily and then highlight you, right? Wow. He was a character. Um, and I loved him, you know. Uh, and it was, he was a tough teacher and he was one of the uh, uh, one of those teachers you kind of love to hate, you know, uh, but also hate to love because he was a really a duality of a guy, someone that made you not want to practice piano and yet you did want to do it just to make him happy. And, uh, well... I didn't know anything about his family history or anything about uh, other than the fact that he was involved with Carnegie Mellon and, and taught music outside of Carnegie. Uh, I had no idea that he came from a legend, a Pittsburgh legend, a man named Fidelis Zitterbart. This man, his grandfather, uh, who died in 1915, was what you would say a musical savant, someone who is a uh, well-recognized in this day and age as a complete and utter musical genius. And he was also, it's good for me to know, as strange and unusual as his grandson. <laughs> and that's why we're going to talk about him. So I found a newspaper article from 1915, the day, uh, the year that he passed away. And it's going to give you a little description about who this guy was. And, uh, and now granted they're, they're promoting a concert of his music. Uh, so it's not, uh, date relevant but i will read this to you because it is interesting and it it completely makes sense after knowing about my teacher his grandson it says pittsburgh's work will play be played here soon little by little the story of fidelis zitterbart almost a forgotten pittsburgh composer begins to take place yesterday pieced together from old programs yellowed clippings and interviews with mus musicians both young and old who were fortunate enough to be familiar with his bits of music it is a strange tale, an almost weird account of a musical genius whose resilience and whose determination that his works should be performed perfectly prevented him from ever hearing most of the melodies he even wrote. One of the first public performances of Zitterbar composition in recent years will be given next month by Shapiro String Quartet in the Hotel Shenley. In telling of his plan to play the short Presto and later a more elaborate work, conductor Max Shapiro said yesterday, uh, with elation, the discovery of another work of the composer's lost, thought lost to time, a quartet in D minor, an unusual merit. Now, here's the strange thing about this guy. Right? This work, more than any I've ever seen, reveals what an interesting genius Zitterbart was, Shapiro declared. It is the most original composition, a beautiful work, yet its merits was entirely unknown. Mr. C.J. Braun Jr., who is Zitterbart's son-in-law and who has very graciously afforded me the privilege of going through some of the composer's quartets, was hardly aware of the existence of this work so fine as this, since no one has ever heard it and no one has had any time to even examine it, piece by piece, 
all of Zitterbart's 1,500 <laughs> selections that he wrote. Shapiro, who would present Presto on Sunday afternoon, February 23rd, said it would prepare for a larger work the evening in March, which will give the musicians ample time for rehearsals. But here's where it gets uh, some of his clues to his strange personality was really revealed in a large number of his compositions, but a more intimate picture of the musician disclosing the reason why his works were so little known was given yesterday. Throughout his life, Zitterbart was extremely re reluctant. He wrote for himself, and because he felt that there were no orchestra here able to play his works, preferred that his compositions would remain unplayed. At times when a group of musicians were together at his home, he would play short passages for some of his work, but before he had time to go over the piece a second time, he would quickly take it away and then lock it up. That's all, he would say. That's enough for now, indicating that he was either dissatisfied with the music or with the way that it had been performed. So this goes on to say uh, that he was just an interesting, a strange guy. Uh, came here to America. Uh, his father was a director of the Drury Theater Orchestra. He taught Zitterbart. Uh, violin at the age of nine, and the future composer joined the orchestra as a regular performer. And he started composing works ever since. What makes this interesting? Now, even though this article says 1400, the University of Pittsburgh, which has his collection of music today, has over 1500 works for orchestra. Now, to put that in perspective, Mozart, when he died, wrote a total of 600 things. Bach, when he died, wrote 1,128 known compositions. Fidelis Zitterbart, Pittsburgh composer of yore, 1,500. <laughs> so what's the deal? Are any uh, of them good? I don't know. <laughs> I have seen a few of them. Uh, he wrote a Christmas uh, overture, which is uh, available online for free through the uh, IMSLP, which is like the little secret website of uh, free public domain sheet music for classical musicians. Uh, but on there, they do have some of his scores, uh, and uh, none of it has ever been recorded, I don't think. Uh, so I know some of it has been played even in modern times, but uh, just like Bach, a lot of Bach's things were, I mean, handwritten, and some of them never performed or were maybe performed once during his lifetime, but then just never heard ever again. No recording of some things that Bach wrote exist. None. So it's the uh, same thing goes for this guy. Uh, he's just there's so numerous, uh, so many compositions. It's hard to really, you know, kind of weed out all the ones for the hit. You know, um, I'm sure there is hits. You just got to find it. But he was too much of a perfectionist. Exactly, too much perfectionist that he would even let you know he'd have people start to play it, then he'd just rip the music off their music stands and lock it back up and say that's enough, that's all. <laughs> so. A weird, interesting guy, and um, if he's anything like his grandson turned out to be, I can totally see how this makes sense. So that's why I wanted to talk about him, because uh, I, I happen to kind of be in the same world as him. And um, and Ralph, uh, my teacher, had a lot of his scores at his home. They would just keep him boxes. you know. So this, uh, this stuff is pretty cool. You never know uh, what you'll find until you look. And, uh, and that's going to bring us to our last story the 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 d of the quad of the stories <laughs> and that is going to be about the strange and unusual tale 
And I'm not saying that it actually does exist because, you know, I'm Italian and there's no such thing as the mafia. Uh huh. There's no such thing. But if there was, Pittsburgh did have mob bosses and Pittsburgh did have mob land killings and a pretty infamous one. And I'm going to tell you the story. Not technically the first mob boss of Pittsburgh, the second one. That, you know, the first one goes to the honor of Gregorio Conti, and he was the mob boss of Pittsburgh in the 1910s. This is about the most well-known and most hated of all mob bosses. The early mafia involved in our city was one of loan sharking and gambling, right, prior to the 1920s. But then a new game came into town, prohibition. After Conti, after Greg Conte retired, Stefano Monastero took over the reins and built up a mob presence here like none other has before. In the decade leading up to the repeal of Prohibition, gangs fought constantly over territory in Pittsburgh. Between 1926 and 1933 alone, there were more than 200 gangland killings in Allegheny County, half of them still unsolved cold cases. Half? Half. <laughs> <laughs> um, many bootleggers simply just disappeared. And being a racket king, of sure, has its perks, but it also has its many downfalls. And that's exactly what happened to Stefano Monastero. We're going to talk about his downfall. On August 6th, 1929, Stefano and his brother Sam arrived at the front entrance of St. John's Hospital, which is near Brighton Road. Uh, to come and visit one of their made men. And the rest I'm going to read to you directly from the newspaper. The title. Steve Monastero is riddled with shotgun slugs by five men in an auto. Steve Monastero, the, for four years, one of the overlords of the underworld of Pittsburgh, was shot to death by a shotgun squad of killers in front of St. John's Hospital Northside early last night. The booming shotguns ended what was four years had been a charmed life. Five men waited near the front of the hospital in a parked sedan with their curtains drawn. Steve and his brother Sam drew up before the hospital in a big steel armored car with its three-quarter inch bulletproof glass. In 1929 cars we're talking yeah. about. Behind them was another car carrying an armed guard that had traveled with Steve night and day for the past four years. Steve and Sam left the car, passed the waiting murdering car, and were about to turn into the hospital entrance when... Sawed-off shotguns were thrust through the drawn curtains, and Steve went down under a charge of heavy slugs that riddled him. One of the killers leaped from the murdering car, holding an automatic rifle close to the withering man, emptied the cartridges into his head. The car then rolled away. Sam Monastero, meantime, was not idle. As his brother went down, he fled through the hospital out a rear door and was arrested about a block away by Lieutenant Thomas Gross. Three shots had been fired from the revolver a trail of blood from the scene of the killing to a point where it was lost in the brush on a nearby hillside indicated that Sam had gotten somebody. Some of the bystanders declared that the man who shot Steve through the head as he laid on the ground had failed to get back into the car as it sped away. Monastero for four years has been known as the king of the bootleg supply racket here in Pittsburgh. He controlled at least two big warehouses from which he supplied corn, sugar, stills, coils, bottles, labels, and the complete bootlegging plant. Monastero's murder follows by six days the bombing of a warehouse of Morris Kern in Penn Avenue. Kern was also in the bootlegging supply racket. 
Interesting. So did they ever find the guy who killed Stefano Monastero? And the answer is yes. Oh, they did. <laughs> now, these articles are great because, you know, picture it like it's an old, uh, old-timey. Here, why don't you go ahead and uh, read this one? This is a uh, old-timey 1929 discovery of the guy who shot the mob boss of Pittsburgh. Nab gangsters, murderer of Monastero. Pangallo. Yeah. Target for many gunmen arrested. Gain name of Ghost. Small arsenal seized with former lieutenant, later enemy of leader. Joe Pagnallo, 38, the ghost of the hill, was lodged in Central Police Station yesterday by members of the homicide squad under Lieutenant David Corbett on a charge of murder. He is charged with the number of his former chieftain, Steve Monastero, the overlord of gang killings who died as he lived in front of St. John's Hospital Tuesday night. Pangala was arrested in his home, 805 8th Avenue McKees Rocks. Taken by surprise, he had no chance to use any of the three revolvers or knives or stilettos the homicide squad confiscated. With usual Sicilian silence, he had nothing to say about the Monastero shooting, nor would he comment on the three attempts which had been made on his own life, which earned for him the nickname of Ghost, since he apparently bore a charmed life. Ooh, interesting. Thank you, old-timey news man. The Ghost of the Hill. How, how about that? I'll research that guy. <laughs> right, right around my neighborhood in McKees Rocks on yeah. 5th Avenue. That's where he lived. Exactly. So, of course, uh, you know, the, the main boss is killed, uh, riddled, you know. Uh, photos do appear in the newspaper of this armored car shot to smithereens. And, of course, the uh, murder weapon laid there on the ground, the sawed-off shotguns. And detectives uh, posed for a photograph with that. But what happens to his brother, good old Sam's brother, uh, Steve's brother, Sam, right? Well, he goes and takes a ride in his new auto. That's the title of this uh, article. The victim had a lured life, was credited with putting many of his own enemies on the spot. Racketeers got Sam Monastero, powerful bootleg syndicate chieftain last night. They gathered him in his new blue coupe then drove the car to Jack's Run along the lonely Jack's Run Road near Westview. Monastero, who fell heir to his brother's rich bootlegging supply business when Stephen Monastero was riddled with bullets from a murdering car in front of St. John's Hospital Northside last August 6th, fell heir also to his enemies. But where Steve died in true gangster fashion to the music of roaring sawed-off shotguns and the rataplan of crackling auto <laughs> automations, Sam the brother, died with his own necktie twisted around his neck. Oh, wow, that is classic. Uh, it is. Gangster. <laughs> like straight out of the, you know, Goodfellas <laughs> or Godfather. Uh, the, the mob boss shot to death outside of the hospital, visiting one of his main men, and then his brother strangled to death with his own necktie in his car outside Westview on Jack's Run Road. So these are some of the tales uh, that you find in the newspapers, which are not necessarily in our history books, <laughs> per se. You're not going to say, oh, the guy, you know, the Racket Kings of Northside. Let's write a history book about those guys. And uh, and you should, because all this stuff, all these different things, Fidelis Zitterbart, Chakor Meteorites, uh, you know. The FBI investigating the FBI, the FBI investigations. And I will look more into the FBI's uh, website. Since they already got me, uh, I might as well keep on looking. And keep on digging because there is lots of th interesting things that uh, you come across there. But I wanted to share these uh, quadrillion, qu 
quad of tails. I was going to say quadrillion would be Quadrillion of tails. Oh, man. Yeah, geez. <laughs> but anyways, I hope you enjoyed these four tales. And uh, if you have any other suggestions or want to hear a future show, of, uh, and you have even just one small tale that you'd like me to include in a future show, let us know. And uh, without further ado, that's it for Pit. <laughs>